Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art and craft of motion imaging. For more information about the project and filmmakers discussed in this episode, as well as production images, visit the podcast section of our website at ASCMag.com. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Samantha Dillard, a digital producer at the American Society of Cinematographers. Today, I'm at the new ASC Airy Education Center with Sharon Callahan, ASC, to discuss her work as director of photography on several Disney Pixar features. After graduating from art school, where she studied illustration, graphic design, and still photography, Sharon began her career as an art director at local television stations in Spokane, Washington, and the documentary production company Pinnacle Productions. She later worked as a lighting director for Pacific Data Images, creating computer-generated imagery for commercials and television programs. In 1994, she joined Pixar Animation Studios as the lighting supervisor on the first-ever computer-animated feature film, Toy Story. After recognizing that computer animation filmmaking processes had more in common with live-action production than cell animation, Sharon was credited as a director of photography on her next feature, A Bug's Life. Sharon made history in 2014 by becoming the first ASC member invited to join the society on the basis of a career entirely in animation. Her other work includes Toy Story 2, Finding Nemo, Ratatouille, Cars 2, The Good Dinosaur, and Onward. She also provided additional lighting design on Coco. Two of her projects, Finding Nemo and Ratatouille, earned Academy Awards for Best Animated Feature. Hi, I'm Sharon Callahan, ASC, and I am a director of photography at Pixar Animation Studios. And I'm here today to talk a little bit about computer animation cinematography and my work in particular. Can you explain the differences between camera and lighting directors of photography in computer animation? Well, in our world, when we started Toy Story, all of the principles on that show came from the cell animation world, Disney in particular. And so they modeled all of our production processes on the cell animation method of working, which had a layout department that, you know, kind of laid out all of the, the shots for the ink and paint department to fill in. And that was kind of the model they were familiar with. And so they started making Toy Story the similar way. By the end of the film, because we're in a 3D world instead of a 2D world, by the end of it, we're kind of like, maybe our production process would really more model a live action process because it just makes more sense. And a lot of the ways we were thinking about the work was much more from a live action perspective than a 2D cell animation perspective. And so we kind of started there, but our tools have always been kind of separate. And over the years, we're trying to get them to talk to each other more. But still, our crews are very large, like I usually have between oh, 20 and 60 people on my crew. Um, the layout department has probably you know 10 to 20 people on their crew at any given time. So there's, there's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of work going through the pipeline at the same time. And we've just learned that 
we need to divide and conquer to get the work done and we collaborate really well together so we're constantly talking to each other as we're going through the process but the camera department or our layout department sets up the shots blocking out the action and everything that needs to happen in the shot based on the storyboards to the camera and they select the lenses and they work with editorial in a very close loop as far as like coverage shots and all that kind of stuff. And then they deliver the shots at that point to animation and the rest of the department's downstream lighting's towards the end. And we finish the movie based on what they've blocked in. The lighting department and the lighting director photographer in particular is responsible for the final look of the film. So it's, you know, I do concept art, I do lighting studies, um, I do a lighting plan. We do previs lighting for layout and we take it the process all the way through to final color grading for all the different formats that exist. And so it's kind of more the, the light color look and feel of the film. What is your process in pre-production in terms of research for elements such as location and weather? Well, we spend a lot of time because for us having a strong sense of place and a feeling of authenticity is really important for us, especially like for a film like Ratatouille, where it was set somewhere that people know, Paris, you know, it, we really wanted to, for a Parisian to feel like they're there. And so we start by doing things like research trips where we go and just walk around and observe. You know, I really like to go with my camera and just spend time walking around and watching what the weather's doing, watching what the light quality is like and how the light's bouncing around between the buildings, you know, what color the shadows are, what does the atmosphere look like over distance, especially like with the clouds, how soft do they feel? Because all of that really gives you a, a sense of place. And so we, the production designer, Harley Jessup and I went to Paris. We spent uh, probably a five days walking around just taking photos and you know I was looking at the light and kind of the big picture kind of stuff and Harley was looking at the tiny little details like sewer grates and stuff like that that I was like oh my god right you know he was like down in the in the ground photographing stuff um, but together our perspectives really kind of shaped the whole movie because you know he was obviously interested in designing every little piece of the sets and stuff and I was you know interested in really making it come to life. We also do a lot of, you know, looking through coffee table books and looking for photos online. We look at paintings. We look at illustrations. We obviously look at movies, you know, that have been shot in Paris. Um, and just movies in general, like, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to the director about the overall tone of the film, you know, and what they're trying to get out of it. And, you know, if there's any films that inspire the director for any reason, like a lot of times it might be something of how it's edited or how the score influences the film. But, you know, all of that stuff factors in even to the visuals. So we spent a lot of time doing that and just trying to get inside the director's head. Is there anything that you wanted to add about how weather never has to be a factor in terms of like slowing down the production? Yeah, that is the benefit is like we never have to kind of wait for the weather to be sunny or for it to stop raining, you know, because we have to create all that. But the downside is we have to create all that. Like sometimes it can be um, pretty time intensive and expensive to create. Like on The Good Dinosaur, we had several scenes that were rainy and rain is a, a difficult thing for us to, to deal with because trying to, you have to light all the raindrops. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't get anything for free. So it's not easy to necessarily make the rain feel like rain. So you mentioned that you often reference live action films. 
for your work. And I've read that you've heavily studied the lighting and composition of live action cinematographers and use this live action photography as inspiration in your work. Who were some of your earliest inspirations in cinematography and whose work continues to inspire you now? Well, I spent uh, a lot of time early in my career educating myself because I didn't go to film school. So I went to art school. I studied illustration, photography, and graphic design. And, you know, but there was just something about this medium that really appealed to me just from a, a filmmaker's um, perspective. And so I spent a lot of time I, watching films early on. I called up the Academy um, way back when and asked them for a list of every film that had ever been nominated for cinematography and I just started at the beginning and started watching all of them. Any of them that were still in print that I could get my hands on, you know, I watched them and just watched how things progressed, you know, what, you know, happened through the history of cinematography. And then I started um, focusing on, you know, individual cinematographers that where their work stood out to me. Like I remember watching Freddie Young and Haxel Wessler and Conrad Hall and all of those early greats, you know, I, I spent a lot of time just watching their body of work to see how, how their styles transcended over different genres and over time. And after a while, you kind of get to where you recognize people's styles. And I think in more recent years, I'll spend time on Netflix just trolling through films to see what catches my eye, you know, and, and foreign films in particular too, where I'll watch like five or 10 minutes of a film just to see what the visual style is and then I'll dump out of it and go on. And every now and then something will really catch my eye and it's inspirational like a Bollywood film or something that was beautifully photographed. And I, there's so many places to find inspiration right now. They, the ASC roster is so deep with talent there's so much talent around the world, and there's so many people that inspire me. There, I'd probably forget way more names than I could ever remember. And I think when I, I watch movies for inspiration, and especially for educational purposes, I spend most of my time watching the movies with the sound off because I want to be able to disconnect from the, the story a little bit and just really be able to look at the visuals and analyze them. And it's also interesting just to see how much of the story transcends through the visuals. I mean, ideally, that's what we all want, right? You also paint landscapes, which is something that director Peter Sohn wanted to exploit for the look in The Good Dinosaur. How have art and painting affected your work throughout your career? Well, I think art is where it started at all. You know, I went to art school originally, and um, the early classes I took in color design and design have probably had the biggest impact in how I see the world, you know, how I... I see the world when I'm trying to create an animated film. And painting is a way for me to kind of continue that education and to continue just really looking at how light works in the physical world and how I can exploit it to create emotion. Um, and it's just fun. I like being outside. I like looking at color and light and it just makes me happy. And one of the things that, you know, when I am on location painting that I find is a really good exercise for me as a cinematographer is that you have to learn how to organize a chaotic image. You know, you look out at this world and it's like, whoa, how am I gonna make that look like anything? And you spend a lot of time learning how to simplify detail, how to reduce messy, chaotic shapes into something that's digestible to the viewer, you know, how to create structure. Um, and I find that all of those, you know, exercises really help me when I'm 
you know, looking at an image for a film of like, how do I reduce it down to the essential details that we need for communicating the idea. Your credited title has varied on projects, starting with the lighting supervisor on Toy Story, which was the first ever entirely computer animated feature. Then it was director of photography on A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, and Finding Nemo. And finally, director of photography lighting on Ratatouille, The Good Dinosaur, and most recently Onward, among others. Can you explain the differences between these positions and the evolution of defining this role as computer animation has developed from Toy Story to Onward? Well, on Toy Story, we didn't really have the concept of a cinematographer on the film at all. We were finding our way and trying to, you know, like I said, base our workflow on a cell animation workflow. How my title has changed from just plain director of photographer to lighting director of photographer is it really, my role hasn't changed a lot, you know, over the years. It's more that the director of photography for camera or layout, you know, has really risen up to be a major contributor on our film process. So it's more of a recognition of what they contribute to the film rather than my role really changing. Who are your closest collaborators on any given project? Well, the director, obviously. Um, I work really closely with the production designer, the art directors, um, the various department supervisors, like sets, characters, um, effects. Um, you know, I obviously have my supervisors and leads and my entire lighting crew that I work really closely with. Production management, definitely. You know, our crew size is probably 250, maybe 300 people at the max. So there's, there's a lot of people that we interact with on a daily basis because it's a highly collaborative workflow. You manage a team of 30 to 60 lighters. What is your process of delegating work so that the lighting is cohesive and the shots look like they were lit by the same person? Well, it's a combination of delegation and also just the processes we set in place to try to create continuity. Um, I have usually some supervisors or leads that I rely on heavily to help me through all of the process. Um, I usually create lighting studies that are targets, you know, that for us to match to. We tend to, you know, try to create foundations to help the film have a style and hang together. Like we have a, a LUT that we establish early on. That's kind of our base look for the film. We set up foundation lighting, which are lighting rigs that can help be the underpinnings for all of the different set lighting. We do um, what we call master lighting, which is set lighting essentially, where we're lighting the scenes independently of the camera, just getting the set lit. Um, and then once the camera's in there, we light to the camera for every shot and do all the, the character finessing and everything to make them look good. Um, and then we have a, a compositing pass where either we're adding effects or other things and you know there is an opportunity to do things like you know tinting the scene or evening things out and then of course we go into um, color grading at the end of it and we use mats um, to help you know even things out as well like for instance on the the film that I last finished onward the characters have blue skin and it was really difficult in different colored lighting situations to get them to not go green or to go purple or to just look gray and strange. And so the mats really helped me, you know, even out their skin tones at the end of the film. You've mentioned that the photography in your work represents an enhanced reality. 
It's realistic, but not necessarily always photorealistic. As such, you're able to create images that are difficult to capture on camera, such as sunlight sparkling on water. And you've mentioned that sometimes you want to capture how you feel when you look at something versus the reality of it. Can you explain that a bit? I think that the, the computer animation world, we're always asking ourselves, why animation? Like, why are we making this film as an animated film? As, like, should this be a live action film? So for us, um, we kind of have to have a good reason for it to be an animated film, like we're creating a world that can't exist in the real world, or we're stylizing it in such a way that it doesn't look realistic. Um, also, in the past, we didn't really have a render that did a very good job of making things look real. And more, more recently, we've gone to a path trace renderer that will give us a better approximation of reality, but still, the computer is only a simplified um, approximation of what reality can give you. So there's always going to be some kind of compromises, um, but a lot of it comes down to the stylization that the director wants or the production designer wants of, you know, what things in this world are we going to exaggerate or push to give us a certain feeling, you know, um, like for instance, when I look at an image that's just rendered in our renderer, it looks computer generated to me no matter how realistically we shade the objects or the lighting, because it doesn't quite capture what your, a camera can see. It doesn't quite capture what your eyes can see, especially like for instance, in a scene that has you know, lower light levels, um, the color in the darks tends to be a little gray and muddy. And, you know, I look at it with my own eyes and I see rich color. So for me, it's like an opportunity of like, well, you know, I could go with what the computer gives me or I could choose to come up with some tools or techniques to enhance what's there to create an enhanced reality. You know, and you can argue about, well, that's not physically correct, but what is physically correct, really? Um, so for me, I just look at it like, what do I want the image, the final image to look like? And how can I use the tools that I have, whether they're photorealistic or, um, you know, not, to, to give me that look. Is this what happened with Ratatouille in making the food look really appealing? Yeah, like for instance, with uh, the food in Ratatouille, it's like I spent a lot of time looking at good food photography and bad food photography. And believe me, there's a lot more bad food photography out there. But one of the things I noticed is that you never see grays in the darks and foods. You know, it's always really rich color for it to look appealing. And so that was one of the things I was trying really hard to get rid of is the natural inherent grays in the low light levels in the computer. And so we added some processing in there to get the colors to really be rich in the shadows and rich in the darks. And it really, that, I think that's the biggest thing that makes the, the food look good in the, or at least reasonable in that film. Um, but I also didn't want to light the food separately from everything else. So I used it as a, a look for the entire film, especially for the skin tones, but also the sets and everything. I really wanted it to have a, a juicy look in the, the low end. I've also read that some of your images make you feel homesick, which I found really interesting. Could you explain that? Well, and I think that comes to from my painting experience of like that that feeling of authenticity and a sense of place. And, and that's why I probably felt it the most on 
the good dinosaurs because I grew up in the Northwest mountains. So when I would look at an image coming out of, out of lighting and I know that it was starting to feel right is that it would kind of make me feel a little bit homesick, you know, make my eyes mist a little bit because it's like, ah, that feels right. You know, you get the, it's the right sense of atmospheric color and density, the right kind of clouds, the right kind of light balance. And it starts feeling like, oh yeah, that's the way I remember it. I can smell the air. I, I feel like I can touch, touch things. On Finding Nemo, you've said that without the dynamic lighting design, it would just look like fish swimming in air. And throughout your work, you really pay attention to these small details to make the pictures look more realistic, like your use of light through steam, mist, and rainbows in The Good Dinosaur. Can you explain the importance of these small details and provide an example from your work where you think they make the biggest impact? So on uh, Finding Nemo, the way the shots would come into us a lot of times would be literally a fish swimming in air. There was no set. We didn't have a fancy render to do fancy water simulations or anything. So we had to kind of create it out of nothing. So a lot of it was spending time trying to break down what makes water look like water, what tools and processes do we need. I spent a lot of time snorkeling and hanging out in a swimming pool just looking at things like the, the light caustics on the bottom. and you know, what makes it feel magical? You know, one of the things that I really liked was um, the chromatic aberrations from the, the caustics. And I wanted to exaggerate that to, because I think it added a sense of um, style to the film beyond just what, you know, makes things look realistic. You know, like I said, we were trying not to necessarily go for realism, but more believability and just something that felt appealing. And so I spend a lot of time just looking at little things like, um, the way light refracts through fog and just like, ooh, how can I exaggerate that a little bit to make things feel a little bit more special? So you mentioned that early on in the projects, you and your team will create a LUT for the film. Have you ever tried to replicate the look of a certain camera, lens, filtration, or LUT that's used in a live action picture? Well, I think we've tried to approximate sometimes. You know, we'll definitely be inspired by a particular look like the way a lens flares or um, a LUT or things like barrel distortion. But usually we're just taking pieces. You know, we're kind of cherry picking what we want to use and, and what we don't. Um, and we've definitely done explorations on, you know, what it would take to get something a little bit more faithful. Like I always like a bleach bypass look and, you know, we'll try to approximate that. But usually we'll, like I said, we won't go all the way there. So some shots are more expensive than others because of various details. Can you maybe walk me through what makes some of these shots more expensive than others? Well, I think some um, things are probably obvious like and similar to live action. Like if you have a cast of thousands, it's going to be an expensive shot. So and the same thing for us. And I think it's you know, not only the number of the characters, but there's aspects of those characters that can be particularly expensive for us that you might not think of. Like for instance, the hair on a character is always very expensive for us. There's also a lot of things that, you know, in a live action film you wouldn't think twice about. Like for instance, a flowing river, like in The Good Dinosaur, um, 
things that like water or any kind of surface that where light needs to penetrate it and bounce around a bunch of times is always going to be very expensive for us because the computer just needs extra time to compute all those light bounces and as a result you know it takes more people time because the iterations to do the work take longer so those are the kind of shots we typically tend to call money shots because we know up front they're either going to be technically or creatively or computationally difficult What's the process of making the decision on which shots are your money shots? Usually that's a conversation with the director on what's the most important for them and where they want to put their money, because we're always trying to get as much of it on the screen as we can. Um, a lot of times there are things that we either don't know how to do up front, you know, like either technically or creatively, and they just take more iteration and look development to accomplish. Sometimes it's just the nature of the shot and the complexity of it, you know, makes it a money shot. Many projects throughout your career have required you and your team to develop new technology to achieve the look you want. In Ratatouille, for example, you used new technology to create juicy looking food that would be appealing to audiences. In The Good Dinosaur, you changed your volumetric cloud effects in order to have the vast scope the director wanted in a way that would save time and expense. What are some of the biggest technological achievements that you and your team have had? Every film, I think it's a little different and it's usually completely driven by the story and again, the director's you know, goals for what he wants to get on the film. But I think probably the, the biggest game changer for us in recent years is going to a Pathrace renderer because more things, we get more things for free. You know, we get, um, like in the old days, we'd set up a light and if you wanted light reflecting off of a surface from that light, you had to add another light. You got nothing for free. Um, now you get that bounce light completely out of the computer. You can still tweak it and enhance it and do whatever you want to with it, but at least you get something. Um, so that's been a, a, a big deal for us. Um, we're constantly upgrading our simulation tools for doing things like water and just cloth dynamics and stuff like that. So when we upgrade any of our tools, like say for instance our new render, there's always compromises to be made because you you take a big advancement in one area and usually you know you get some new features out of it that are wonderful, but sometimes old features that you've come to rely on get lost or are irrelevant at that point. And you either have to figure out how to move on without them or how you're gonna recreate them to get the functionality back. And sometimes it's like, it's not the same, but it might be better, you know, at the end of the day. And so every film, it's a compromise on, you know, what you're going to exploit from the new tools and what you need to rewrite, you know, what you need to just get over and move on. Do you have a favorite shot or sequence from any of your projects? Yeah, I have a lot of them. <laughs> um, I think, though, if the as a project as a whole, I'd say that you know Ratatouille still has a big place in my heart. I'm very happy with how it's still holds up over um, the last decade. Um, but I think every film definitely has sequences that I fall in love with that make me happy. You mentioned the good dinosaur and onward specifically. Is there something from either of those that you'd like well, to I share? Well, I think the, the good dinosaur was a, a fun one because it is set in a world that I'm very familiar with. And, you know, as a landscape painter, I love being outside. So that movie was a lot of fun to work on. Are there shots or sequences of which you are most proud from an artistic or technical perspective? Well, personally, I really like either outdoor 
landscape stuff because that's always fun um, or low light level situations I love trying to do scenes that are single source if I can get away with it um, and there's a couple in um, Onward that I was finally able to do something that um, I thought was fun that way there's one sequence where um, a police car pulls over the brothers and um, they're trying to get out of getting a ticket and it, the scene is completely lit just by the police car and the thing that I really like about that is I've always wanted to just do a scene that was set and everything was completely black. The sky is black. You can't see anything beyond where the characters are standing. And that's something you, you probably see a lot in live action. But in the animation world, you know, we like to celebrate everything. We, everybody puts so much work into every single detail that we tend to add enough light that you can see all the richness. Um, but this was a scene that we really wanted it just to be intimate between the characters and a little bit tense. And so getting rid of all of that light outside of the cop zone was a, just a really fun way of doing that. So I, I, that was one that I really liked. Yeah, that reminds me of the shot in Finding Nemo where the angler Anglerfish, yeah. yeah. Um, which is like everyone's favorite part of Finding Nemo, that it's dark and then this like terrifying yeah. fish comes yeah. out of those nowhere. Are, those are my favorite kind of scenes to light. Yeah, those are really fun. As one of the pioneers in computer animated feature filmmaking, how do you see the art form evolving in the future? Well, it's been really interesting over my career to watch, you know, how it's progressed so far. You know, um, there's more and more films that rely heavily on set extension that's all CG. You know, films like Gravity, you know, was a, a real game changer, um, Avatar. And I think films like The Lion King, you know, where it's all CG, but they're, they're really trying for a photorealistic look and trying to, to bridge that gap into live action. I think that the trend is probably gonna be harder and harder for people to distinguish the difference between what was captured in camera and what was generated in the computer. And I think that, you know, cinematographers in the future will probably be comfortable in both worlds and, you know, be looking at the finished images for, you know, what do they want the image to look like and less concern about how it was created. Yeah, I mean, I like film too, and I like traditionally shot films. I like watching them, so. There's a place for everything. There is a place for everything. And, but I'm hoping that, you know, that everything is everything. It's, you know, all inclusive. Your invitation to join the ASC was historic, as you were the first and are currently the only member to join on the basis of a career entirely in animation. Can you discuss the significance of this in terms of the future of cinematography? Well, being invited to join the ASC was definitely the realization of a long-term career goal for me that I really, you know, didn't think was ever going to happen, so it was a, a wonderful surprise and a, a humbling honor. Um, I like to think of it as kind of an extension of the ASC's motto of artistry, loyalty, and progress, you know, and that it's a, a sign of, of progress to the future of like, you know, what the future of cinematography might be and a, a recognition that you know, the artistry in creating a computer-generated film is very similar to the, the artistry of creating a live-action film and that we're just trying to make images that resonate with the viewer and draw the viewer in and emotionally support the story and hopefully look gorgeous. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was a pleasure getting to speak with you. 
Thank you. Likewise. The American Cinematographer Podcast is a production of the American Society of Cinematographers. It is produced by David Williams, Samantha Dillard, and Matt Newman. This episode was edited by Alex Beattie and Samantha Dillard. Audio was provided by Alex Beattie. Research was by Samantha Dillard. Special thanks to Sharon Callahan, ASC, and Pixar Animation Studios. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. For your complete cinematography resource, visit ASCMag.com and subscribe to American Cinematographer Magazine.